going to be reading today from Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. It won't be on the screens. You're, feel free to open up if you'd like to follow along. If not, just allow the Word of God to be spoken over you. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be with you for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Justin. Good morning. Good to be with you. It is December 24th, 1914. And Charles Brewer finds himself sitting in a muddy foxhole in the middle of northern France. Brewer was a 19-year-old lieutenant in the British Army, but he did not expect to find himself here on Christmas Eve that year. Because actually when, when Great Britain got into World War I in August of that year, there were a number of people on both sides who fully expected that the war would be over in a few months, maybe even a few weeks, and we'd all just go home. But here they were, five months later, and a million lives later, and reality was beginning to set in. That this war was going to take a lot longer and take a far greater toll than anyone had really anticipated. So there Brewer sat in that foxhole that Christmas Eve, shivering along with some of his fellow soldiers there, hoping to survive a war that seemed to have no end in sight. All of a sudden, one of the British sentries caught this glimpse of light about 100 yards away where the German lines sat. They couldn't quite make out what it was, so some of the other soldiers started kind of looking, and and Brewer recalls himself kind of pulling himself up and peeking over the edge of the trench, over the sandbags that were sitting there to catch a glimpse of what was going on over there. And he looked at it for a minute and, and couldn't quite make it out, and then he realized what he was looking at was a Christmas tree that had been lit up with candles or flares or something he didn't know but but as he sat there looking at this tree he then began to realize that it wasn't the only one there that there was actually a string of christmas trees along the german lines across no man's land there a few moments later uh, they began to hear this sound coming across from the German side. This faint noise was a song, and they couldn't make out the lyrics because it was being sung in German, but as they listened closely, they realized that they recognized the tune. Silent night, stille Nacht in German. 
is what they were singing. And, and the soldiers, the British soldiers sat there listening intently as they sang all the way through this. And then when it was done, some of them actually started cheering and applauding. And then the British soldiers began singing the song back to the Germans in English. This incredible moment of kind of connection between the two sides, but it was about to get even crazier. The following morning on Christmas Day, when the sun came up, some of the soldiers on both sides slowly and cautiously pulled themselves out of their foxholes and then slowly and cautiously made their way out into the middle of no man's land where they met up with one another and shook hands and wished each other Merry Christmas and started talking and conversing right out there amongst these giant craters where mortars had been falling and, and trees fallen over and, and even the frozen corpses of some of their comrades, they're sitting there just talking and hanging out. And, and it turns out this wasn't the only place that this was happening. It's been reported that all along the 500-mile western front on that Christmas day, there were these sporadic pockets of unofficial ceasefire that took place where soldiers, for whatever reason, came out of the trenches and came out and met each other in the middle, and they exchanged stories, and, and some of them even exchanged gifts, whatever they kind of had on hand, boxes of cigarettes or, or sausages or chocolates or whatever they may have. And, and, and it's even reported that in a couple places, impromptu soccer matches broke out between the two sides, and they would kick a sandbag or a tin can around to play this game together. It's this incredible moment of humanity and the ability to connect where these two people put aside their differences to come together in peace and in harmony. It's, it's known today as the Christmas truce of World War I, and it's been commemorated in books and in songs and in monuments, this beautiful moment of peace in a very dark time. And then December 26th came. And all of those soldiers walked back into their foxholes, picked up their guns, and started killing each other again. There are few things in this world more beautiful, more alluring than peace. Unfortunately, there are also few things in this world more elusive, more fleeting, more short-lived than peace. Peace is one of those fascinating concepts. It's, it's one of the few things that we pretty much all agree on. Like everybody, everybody agrees that peace is a good thing. Almost everybody wants it. We, we pray for it, for world peace, and we sing songs about it, and we converse about how best to have it. And, and world leaders, they strive to bring peace to the earth through treaties and alliances and diplomacy. And, and on the domestic level here in our own country, our, our leaders try to bring peace here through legislation and, and through policing and through education to help us understand one another. But it seems that for all the effort that we place towards this, all the the momentum we seek to have in that, man, you turn on the news, you scroll through your Twitter feed, and you see that we are not making much progress in this area. 
But here's the truth. It's, this is more than just kind of a world stage issue. For many people, this is a very personal issue. Many people live their lives daily with conflict surrounding them in the relationships that they're a part of, the people that they're connected to. There are people who have to steal themselves before going into work every day because they know that they're about to step into a cutthroat work environment where everyone is trying to get ahead and outpace the other and there's this tension in the workplace all day long. There are others who have to steal themselves before they go home because their house, their home is one that is full of marital conflict and sibling rivalry. The holidays actually are a great illustration of this. Do you know how many people this Christmas, maybe you're one of them, how many people this Christmas dread going home to visit family because it's just a reminder of the great lack of peace within their own families. Actually, it goes deeper than that, though. There is a profound lack of peace, not just in the world and, and not just in people's relationships. But there is a profound lack of peace within our own souls, within our own minds. Has there ever been a culture that has put more money or effort or time towards achieving peace of mind? Think about all the billions of dollars we spend every year on home insurance and health insurance and retirement funds and storm shelters and therapists and uh, emerge or, or like security systems and anxiety medication. But for all the money we throw at it and for all the effort we place toward it, towards it, peace just seems to evade us. Have you noticed that? You see that in the people around you? The way they seem to just live on edge with this tension, this constant stress in their life? Or maybe have you experienced that yourself? This restlessness in you, this lack of joy in your own life? Here's the thing, though. It's, it's not just us, to be fair. It's not just Americans, it's not just people in the modern Western world, no. This idea of peace, this is something that people have longed for and yet struggled to find throughout history. That's why many of the people that we celebrate in history are, are those men and women who have managed for, for a short period of time to, to display to us, to give us some glimpse of, some shred of peace in this world. We, we celebrate those people. We give them awards, Nobel Peace Prize. Leaders have risen to power by promising to give peace to their people. Empires have boasted about their ability to, to provide it for the world. One such empire was the Roman Empire that ruled over most of the known world during the first century when the New Testament was taking place and being written. The Romans constantly bragged about what they called the Pax Romana, that is, the peace of Rome. They loved to remind their citizens that you have Rome to thank for the peace that you're experiencing in this world. You have Rome to thank for restoring order and civility amidst the chaos. Now, they didn't mention oftentimes that that peace was a peace that had been carved out with the edge of a sword, or that that peace was maintained through fear and oppression. 
They loved the idea that they had brought peace to the world. And then one night, in the middle of that Pax Romana, in this backwoods corner of the Roman Empire, these shepherds are hanging out in the, the, the meadows there and in the pastures with their sheep, and all of a sudden this angel appears to them and announces that a baby has been born, a, a child has been born in Bethlehem, and he's the Savior, and he's the long-awaited Messiah that we've been looking for. And then all of a sudden, it's just not just him. The night sky fills up with these angels that all start to proclaim the same thing, and they break out in song singing this, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. If you read the rest of the story, you'll see that the shepherds, they heed these words, they listen, and they run to Bethlehem to see this thing that's been announced. But you got to wonder, at least I've wondered, if there wasn't at least one of those shepherds who somewhere in the back of his mind went, really? Peace? Uh, is the oppressive Roman Empire still in charge here? Is the violent, paranoid King Herod, the same Herod who's about to slaughter a town full of Bethlehem baby boys, is that guy still ruling in our region? Then how can there be peace on earth? How can there be peace in this place? And what does a little baby in a feeding trough have to do with that? You ever feel like that around Christmas time? the most wonderful time of the year. As we come together and we talk all about peace on earth and goodwill towards men and we sing about great tidings of comfort and joy and then you look around the world and you go, really? Is that true? Well, maybe you look down at your own life the season of life that you're in, and the truth is, if you are honest right now, man, marriage is hard. There's a profound lack of peace in my own home, the tension between me and my spouse. Parenting is difficult. I'm losing sleep at night over some of the decisions that my kids are making. Or maybe you lost someone you love this year, and this will be the first Christmas that you spend without them, and, and peace and comfort and joy, those words just don't seem to describe your state of mind right now. Maybe it's just been one of those years where it's been one thing after another, financially or emotionally or relationally, and you sit there singing these songs, joy to the world or peace on earth, and you, and you feel within you this inability to make the connection between what you're singing and what you're feeling. So what did those angels mean? when they said that that little baby's birth meant peace. Well, before we can understand that, first thing we need to do is make sure we're straight on our terms. And we understand biblically what that word means. See, when we hear the word peace, what we tend to think of is something along the lines of a lack of conflict or like the opposite of war. That's what peace is. Now, that's true, and, and, and those little ideas fit within the biblical idea of peace, but the biblical definition, the Hebrew word, the idea that the Jewish people had in mind is much bigger and richer and fuller than that. 
little side note, if you want to kind of explore this further, go home today and just go to Google, type in the Bible Project Peace. They've got this wonderful little four or five minute video that sums this up really well. It was very helpful to me in my preaching. But, but the Hebrew word that we often translate as peace is a word you probably have heard before, shalom. Shalom, and, and on its most basic level, the word shalom means completeness, wholeness. So in Deuteronomy 27, when Moses tells the people of Israel that when you get into the promised land, you need to build an altar, and then he uses the adjective form of this word shalom. He says you need to build an altar out of shalem stones. And by that, he doesn't mean like peaceful stones, stones that haven't gotten into a fight with anyone. No, the word is whole. We translate it uncut. Stones that have not been broken, that a tool has not been used on. They are whole. They are complete. They are as they were meant to be. Or in 1 Kings 9, when the writer tells us that Solomon had finished building the temple, the phrase he actually uses is that uh, Solomon brought shalom to the temple. He made it complete. He made it whole. He brought fullness to it. That's the idea. Uh, sometimes when the Jewish people, when the Hebrew people would ask each other how you're doing, this is the phrase they would use. How is your peace? That is, is everything as it should be in your life? Is everything falling into place? So the opposite of shalom or the opposite of peace is not conflict. The opposite of peace is brokenness, disorder, uh, fractured lives. And the Jewish people loved this idea of peace. It was a huge concept, life as it should be. And so they wanted it for their nation and they prayed for it for Jerusalem and for the temple and for the king and they prayed for it for their families and, and they would often bless one another with this phrase, peace be to you or may the Lord grant you peace. But like many today, they found that it was not easy to come by and that what little peace they had was often short-lived. Probably the best glimpse that the Jewish people ever got of this real shalom in their nation was under the rule of King David, this good and righteous king who fought off all of Israel's enemies and allowed room for the, the empire, for the nation to grow and to expand its borders. And, and under David's rule and then into his son Solomon's rule, there was this period of real shalom where the nation thrived and culture thrived and, and their worship of God thrived. Now, that's not to say it was perfect all the time. There were, there were moments when peace broke down because of foolish decisions David made or Solomon made, especially especially towards the end of Solomon's life. And then that would continue on into his son Rehoboam as the next king when the, the nation itself divided through civil war and became two different nations. And, and from there on out, truthfully, as you read through the story, things only get worse. When you read Israel's history, when you read First and Second Kings, what you read is the tragic story of a nation's steady decline from shalom into brokenness, from peace into political turmoil and fractured families and international dispute until finally Israel was nothing but a shell of its former self, just a shadow of its former glory. And all its enemies came crashing in and invading it and capturing the people and taking them off to exile. And when that takes place, they would cry out to God, why? How is it, Lord? All we've wanted is peace and are we not your people? 
Did you not promise to care for us and bless us and give us peace? How is it that all of this has happened to us? And whenever they cried out like that, God would always answer them. He would send his prophets to them. And the prophets, their consistent, repeated message to the people of Israel can be summed up well by the message of Isaiah 48, 18, where God says this to Israel, Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Oh, that you had obeyed me. Oh, that you would have listened to me, that you would have walked with me and stayed with me and been in relationship with me. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. See, according to God, according to the prophets, the root of Israel's problem, the lack of peace within that nation was not first and foremost because of enemy invaders. Their lack of peace was not because of political turmoil and not because of fragmented family. Their lack of peace in their nation was because they had no peace with God. It was because there was a brokenness in this fundamental area of their lives, the one relationship that defined them and made them who they were. And when people do not have peace with God, it is impossible to have peace anywhere else. It's probably worth saying again, If you do not have peace with God, it's impossible to have it anywhere else. I'm not saying that you cannot have the ability to get along with people. I'm talking about biblical peace, real peace, wholeness. If you do not have peace with God, wholeness there, you will not be able to have wholeness in any other part of your life. Real, profound life as it ought to be, relationships as they ought to be. One of my favorite authors is this uh, British minister by the name of Andrew Wilson. And Andrew Wilson um, compares this idea. He says that trying to find peace, real lasting peace, in a fallen world like ours is a bit like trying to pour coffee on a moving train. I recognize this illustration probably works better in England where they're used to train travel, but bear with me here, okay? He says, when a car attendant, uh, which is, you know, the equivalent of a flight attendant, when they make their way out into the train car there and they begin pouring coffee for passengers, he says, that's a, that's a dicey situation right there. That's, that's a difficult thing to perform because on a train, you never know when the car might lurch a little to the right or when the train's going to bank left or, or when it may speed up or even kind of slow down suddenly and everything's going to kind of jerk forward. So to pour coffee on a train requires an incredible amount of effort and focus and balance to be able to do something like that. It's difficult, but he says it is possible as long as that train stays on the tracks. As long as it's firmly set there on the rails, it's doable. But if for some reason disaster were to strike, catastrophe were to happen, and that train were to go flying off of the rails, well, in that moment, pouring coffee is not just difficult, it's impossible. As luggage and bodies become tumbling around in the car and up becomes down and down becomes up and there's no way to keep your bearings, it's impossible to pour coffee in a situation like that. There's no use even trying. This, Wilson says, is what life is like. That when a person has peace at the most fundamental level, when they have peace with God, it's like a train firmly set on the tracks. 
And whatever else life may throw at that person, the, the train may speed up, the train may bank left, whatever may happen, you're still able to have peace because you have it where it matters most. The problem, though, is that we live in a world that has flown off the rails. And the Bible makes it pretty clear that there is not a person in this room who's excluded from that category. That every one of us live lives that have flown off the rails. Every one of us live lives that have severed ourselves from our creator, that have made us at odds with the God who made us and loves us, the God that we were meant to be in relationship for. And this creates chaos in every other area of our lives. And we wonder then why our 401ks aren't enough to help us sleep well at night. Why all the treaties in the world can't keep different nations from fighting with one another. Why all the education and legislation that our lawmakers may try to put out cannot keep races from hating one another and living in bitterness towards one another. It's because when they do all those things, they're trying to deal with external issues. They're trying to deal with symptoms. But the real problem flows from something deep within us, from a lack of peace in the one area where it matters most. So what do we do when we realize this? When we realize that we are at odds with our maker? Answer? Nothing. There's nothing that you can do. There's nothing that I can do to make that relationship right again. I cannot undo my rebellion. I can't magically fix this, this relationship that I have severed by my own doing, by trying to take control of my life. I cannot do that any more than I can grab a train car out of midair and place it safely back on the tracks. That would be impossible for me. That's impossible for you. Fortunately, it's not impossible for God. And that's where Christmas comes in. That's what the baby is for. That's the point of the angel's song on that night. See, I don't know if the shepherds are grasping this fully in that moment, but in that little feeding trough in Bethlehem on that night sits the very center of God's plan for reconciling the world back to himself, for making everything whole, for making everything renewed and right again. That's why the angels sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace because they know that that baby is the one person who can put the train back on the rails. Because he's the one that they've been waiting for. Because he's the one that the prophets spoke about, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Prince of of wholeness, prince of every wrong made right again. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. But how? How does God bring peace, bring wholeness and reconciliation through this boy? Well, to answer that question, we have to fast forward a few decades. And we have to move forward from Christmas into another holiday to another dark night in a Judean countryside when that little baby is all grown up and Jesus is sitting in an upper room sharing the Passover meal with his disciples. 
And in the middle of that room, Jesus breaks this news to them that they were not expecting that he's about to leave them, that he's about to go away and to be with the Father. And when he tells them these things, they are distraught. They can't believe their ears. Jesus, we, we left everything to follow you. We've pinned all our hopes on you. How can you be going away now when the pressure is turned on, when it's at its hottest? You're going to leave us? What, what are we going to do? You can see it in their faces. You can hear it in their voices, the fear, the anxiety, the trouble in their hearts. And so with compassion, In his eyes, Jesus looks at them and he speaks this word to them, peace. See, the full sentence is found in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Side note, how incredible is it in this moment That Jesus, with all the knowledge in his mind of what he's about to go through, all the pain and suffering and separation from the Father that he's about to endure, all the things he knows about that are going on in the world at this moment, the injustice and the war and the tragedy and the loss, and of all those things he is able in that moment to have at the forefront of his mind his own disciples and their fear their troubledness of heart, and he's able to say to them, I don't want that for you. I confess to you that I I think sometimes I'm guilty of believing that my own state of mind, the things that concern me and keep me up at night, that they fall way low on Jesus' priority list. I don't know about the things themselves, but as I read through the scriptures, I know that my own heart, my own peace within my soul as the Bible describes him, that that's something that he cares about. He cares about that for you. He cares about that for his disciples. And so he says to them, peace. But when he says that word to them, he's not just giving them kind of empty platitudes. He's not just giving them a pep talk. Hey, hang in there, guys. It's going to get better. You can make it through this. I know it. I believe in you. That's not what he's doing. When he says, my peace I give to you, he means that because he knows that in a few hours, he's about to march his way up Golgotha and purchase that peace for them. He's about to go to the cross and make that peace a reality for them because he's about to go and take everything that stands between us and God, all of our sin and all of our rebellion and all of our shame and the fear of his judgment, he's going to take all of it and nail it to the cross and remove it for anyone who has placed their faith in Jesus. That's why Paul, when thinking about this later, is able to say in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or in Colossians 1, he says that through Christ, God reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. But this kind of peace is different than anything else because it is a peace that goes beyond externals. That's why Jesus says it in there. I do not give to you peace as the world gives you peace. How does the world give you peace? Well, it's through all the things that we've mentioned, through health insurance, through storm shelters, through retirement funds, through um, 
peace deals, through therapy, all of these things are good things. All of these things we can be thankful for and we can utilize, but all of these things are things that can go away. That's the problem with Christmas truces, is that they only last until December 26th. And retirement funds can dry up. And anxiety medication can stop working. But Jesus gives a kind of peace that is deep and lasting. It's the kind of peace that knows that God is not against me anymore, but that he loves me in Christ. It's the kind of peace that comes from knowing that the one I've trusted in cares for me and is sovereign over my life because he is sovereign over all things, able to use them for my good. Look what Jesus says later in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That sentence is, is interesting. Because in there you can see that the promise for us is not that everything hard in our lives and difficult in our lives will go away. The promise is not that you will never experience stress. The promise is not that you'll never have conflict. At times, in fact, following Jesus may lead to greater conflict, may lead to greater hardship, may lead to greater tribulation. The promise, though, is that when hard things do come, when following Jesus leads to conflict, when the emergency fund dries up, when the anxiety medication doesn't seem to be working, I still have peace because I still have him. Because I still have the one who has overcome and who has reconciled me back to the Father. That is real peace. That's why the angels sing for joy when Jesus is born. And that's why he's still worth singing about today. Do you have that? Do you have that kind of peace? Actually, the, the answer to that is pretty simple. I can answer it for you. Biblically speaking, it goes like this. If you have Jesus, you do. And if you don't have Jesus, you don't. If you do not have Jesus, you do not have that peace with God. You do not have peace in the one relationship that will affect everything else. The angels, even in their song, they, they make this known. The angels do not show up and say, peace to everyone everywhere on earth. Nope. That's the way we sing it sometimes. That's not the way the angels sing it. They say peace to those who he's pleased with. Peace to those who belong to him. Christmas does not offer you a generic Christless peace. The Bible doesn't extend that to you. The Bible's not here. Christmas did not come so that you could be at peace with yourself, so that you could feel better about yourself, so you could feel more connected to the spiritual side of who you are. No, the point of the gospel is to give you the one thing you truly need, which is peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. The good news, though, is that there is not one person in this room right now who is excluded from that 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 offer is extended to every single person in the room. You have been offered the peace of God with Jesus. He paid for that already for you if you are willing to accept it, if you are willing to hand your life over to him in faith and trust that he is the son of God, that he died and saved you from your sins, that he rose again, overcoming the grave and overcoming everything else. It's yours. 
And for those of you who've placed your faith in Jesus, the answer to the question, do you have peace, it's also very simple. Yes, you do have that peace because Jesus purchased it for you. It is your reality. The question is not whether or not you have peace. The question is simply whether or not you are living from that peace. Whether or not you let your peace rest in Jesus or whether or not you've wrapped your peace up in other things here like bank accounts and relationships and circumstances. I realize in wrapping up here, I should probably say this, that this is kind of a complicated issue. And all week long as I've been preparing this, I've been thinking and and knowing that there are many people, many people probably in this room, that this idea of peace is a very real and difficult struggle because for whatever reasons, personal trauma or, or physiological, like chemical imbalances, that issues of anxiety and depression are an everyday struggle. And, and I do not mean and I do not want to heap guilt on you because you found that it's necessary for you to visit a counselor to deal with these things or to have anxiety medication prescribed to you. If, if that is what has been given to you, then you can thank God for those gifts and you can utilize those things. I don't want you to feel bad for that. And I don't want you to feel like you're like a lesser Christian because you struggle struggle with this idea of peace. But at the same time, I don't want to go so far to the other side that I leave you without hope. I don't want to leave you believing or feeling that this is just the way life is for you, that you're just doomed to live this kind of life of anxiety and joylessness, that that's just your makeup, that that's just your personality. I cannot stand up here and tell you that all the things that I've said do not matter. That knowing the Prince of Peace, that knowing his death on your behalf, that his taking your sin and his reconciling you to the Father, his conquering death for you and his constant presence through his Holy Spirit, that that makes no difference. It does make a difference in our lives, in a world, brothers and sisters, that has flown off the rails. We have a sure foundation. We have peace in the one place that it matters most. And this might not magically make your anxiety disappear overnight. It might not make it where you never feel stress. But it is a pretty good anchor in the middle of life's storms and one that, frankly, we ought to spend a lot more time dwelling on. So that's what I want to let you do for these last couple minutes. We have a time of reflection where we're going to put some questions up on the screen. I'm going to give you three questions that are really two, depending on how you answer the first question. The first question is this. Do you have peace with God through Jesus Christ? Now, for many of you, that's the only question you need to dwell on this morning. And you can stop right there because you just need to spend your time thinking through the implications of that, that yes, I do. And you just need to spend some time, as John Piper likes to say, swimming in that truth for a couple minutes. Just delighting in, taking joy in the fact that at the core of who you are, all of that has been made right and made whole by what Jesus has done for you in the cross. Some of you, though, can move on to the next and you need to be able to answer no, I do not. You know that you've never placed your faith in him. You know that you've never given your life to Jesus, given your allegiance to him. And so the question for you to reflect on is this. If not, what keeps you from receiving the peace that he's purchased for you?
keeps you from taking that when he hands that to you? What keeps you like holding back? Why wouldn't you want in on that? I, I hope and pray that right now you hear the Holy Spirit pushing on your heart and that you'll talk to someone after this service, someone sitting next to you, someone up front about what it is to know real peace through knowing the God who gives it to you. And then lastly, for those of you who are able to answer yes, maybe you can spend a little time asking this question. If you have peace with God through Jesus Christ, are you living from that state of peace? Or have you let your peace get wrapped up in all these externals and all the things of the world that shift and change in this world, things that cannot be counted on? Spend some time reflecting on that, and then we will as a body respond to that in song.